This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. What that means in real words is that now we have evidence that the risk of HIV transmission from a person living with HIV who is on antiretroviral therapy with an undetectable viral load, that their risk of transmitting HIV to another person is non-existent. New research findings regarding HIV status will impact how we understand and practice disclosure of HIV status of patients. Specifically, whether or not to disclose a sick person's HIV serostatus to their family or partner. The new research demonstrates that when an HIV-positive person sticks to their treatment, their HIV is undetectable and untransmittable. Our three guests are working together on bioethics projects to spread the awareness of U equals U. Today, we'll have our three guests introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Jamie Christ, and I am a clinical ethics fellow at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. I am a previous graduate from uh, Case Western Reserve University, where I got my JD and a master's in bioethics. And then I moved to Houston, where I do ethics consultation at Houston Methodist Hospital. Hi, I'm Nicole Meredith. I am a clinical ethics fellow here at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian Hospital, Additionally, I am a surgical resident here at Cornell, and I actually have done my first three years of training for surgery, and I'm now out for research for two years, and I'm completing my clinical ethics fellowship during that time. Hi, my name is Nikki Bundia. I am a medical ethics fellow at Weill Cornell Hospital, and I am a hospitalist there doing a part-time fellowship in the ethics program. Jamie, for our listeners, can you offer a story regarding patient HIV status and disclosure? So imagine a person who has recently moved from another state to a city where they're not familiar. They have an expectation that they're going to be able to stay with a family friend, but once they arrive, the family friend is is not accommodating. So they end up on the streets and get into trouble medically and are uh brought to the hospital and needed to get treatment for um, their underlying medical conditions. So in in that process, we're trying to work up what what is wrong, why this person is having trouble. And in that process, we discover that this person has um, HIV and is is struggling to breathe and to, um, you know, keep his mental status where we can talk to him. And so the the process begins that we're trying to find family or friends who can tell us more about this person and trying to help him get through this uh, recent medical crisis that he's found himself in. Nicole or Nikki, would you have a second story to offer? So imagine a person who we know very little about in the hospital, who is a middle-aged man, came into the emergency room complaining of just a fever and a headache for four to five days. In the last couple of days, um, some of his friends noted that he'd become altered, so it was not mentating clearly. And in the emergency room, the doctors do a CAT scan of his head, which shows evidence of a central nervous system infection consistent with toxoplasmosis, which has a very specific um, appearance on CAT scans. 
So um, notably, the infection that he has is associated with HIV, and we find out that the patient has a history of HIV and is not compliant with those medications. So the HIV specialists see him in the emergency room and note that patients who have treatment for this typically can recover with some time with minimal or no clinical sequelae. So the medical team that's admitting him to the hospital wishes to initiate him on treatment for both his HIV and for his infection. But given the patient doesn't have, is not mentating clearly and doesn't have the capacity to make his own medical decisions, the team looks to his girlfriend, who is actually his healthcare proxy, so his formal decision maker for the hospital. And the team is debating whether or not they need to disclose uh, the patient's HIV status to the girlfriend, uh, who is actually unaware of the fact that he is HIV positive. You know, when most people would hear that a patient might not have disclosed their HIV status to a partner, they might jump to conclusions or become indignant. How often have you seen that, and what do you as a clinician understand that you need to do when you have a patient who has not disclosed to a partner? When we hear that a person has not disclosed to a family member or a partner or someone else in their life, we think, wow, that's really irresponsible. But what we have to remember is this is in the context of long-standing stigma against HIV, that this type of disease is very commonly associated with, quote-unquote, unsavory behavior, That whether that is drug users or uh, men who have sex with men or other populations who are, are at risk. These carry this negative connotation in society that we really have to remember as clinicians in the hospital that we have a privilege almost to not know about these things or to, you know, put them in context with what we know about medicine. And we forget what it's what it's like, or we literally have no clue what it's like to be a person living with HIV and whatever that comes with, including the negative social com- commentation that is impacting them. This issue of stigma and how it relates to patients with HIV, what has been your experience of that? So I personally haven't seen this a lot, but I think that when I've talked to other clinicians and some of my colleagues, that this does come up. And I think it makes clinicians kind of recognize their own biases about patients. So we don't know this patient. We don't know why he hasn't disclosed or really the nature of his relationship with the girlfriend at all. So primarily my responsibility as the clinician is to take care of this this patient. So trying to remember that, I guess, as I'm trying to formulate any, or trying to avoid any judgments that I might have and just treat him as the person in front of me. Jamie, how is stigma an issue in these stories? So stigma just more generally is negative attitudes and belief about people. So some other folks that are stigmatized in society are maybe um, different races and other social categories that folks find themselves in that have a a negative connotation and we believe something about them just based on this one kind of arbitrary fact that's about them. And I think we see that a lot in 
um, people living with HIV that is sourced a lot in the fear in, in history of HIV with the epidemic that kind of hit in the 80s. Um, there's also moral judgment and moral fault. There's kind of the idea that these people deserve what they have because they were doing something that was maybe um, considered outside of the normal realm, and therefore they they got what they deserve. Um, these are it, this is sourced in homophobia as well as drug use. There's also a, a major misconception that. Um, we could talk about a little bit more with the the changing medical situation that HIV used to have a pretty much be a death sentence is what a lot of folks still believe is the case, even though it really no longer is. Um, so stigma often leads to discrimination. So that stigma is the attitude and belief, but discrimination is the actual behavior and actions. And so one of the most serious examples of discrimination is actually uh, criminalization of HIV. And this is throughout the United States. There are laws and uh, practices that use a person's positive HIV status to criminalize otherwise legal conduct or even increase the punishment that's normally imposed for an, an offense that because this person is living with HIV, they get a, a more serious punishment for the same crime. Usually this, this criminalization focuses on disclosure um, prior to sexual activity, but we see it across the board with also sharing needles, donating blood, as well as body fluid disorders. And there are actually 34 states that have some specific HIV criminal law associated with it. So it really puts into context how afraid patients are when they are uh, trying to avoid disclosure of their serostatus. They have this whole host of the history and the legal system that's making them feel like this is something they really need to conceal. And it's really important for us as clinicians to to recognize this in, in context. So actually, Jamie, I think that your stigma is more of a societal stigma. Um, so I think, you know, when we get called by clinicians for these specific patients where they're trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, physicians are really concerned about two things. One is that they know they have a duty to this patient, um, and they know that they're supposed to not disclose if the patient doesn't want to, but physicians really feel like they have a duty to society, that they have a duty to warn the people around them that they could be at risk for, trans for transmission of HIV. And I think that clinicians, when they're calling us, they're feeling a lot of kind of turmoil inside about, yes, I know that I'm supposed to be treating this patient, but this patient is doing something irresponsible. They're supposed to protect the people around them. And clinicians feel that way too. They're supposed to protect people. And their reason they're calling is because they want to figure out how to weigh those two things. How do I really do what's right for the patient and what the patient wants without putting the people around them at risk for contracting HIV? How is our current experience different from the past regarding HIV and disclosure? What has changed? So 
There have been a lot of medical updates regarding the treatment of HIV in the last decade, which we'll get into. But I think when thinking about this case, historically, the way we've approached this is that for patients who lack decision-making capacity, according to HIPAA, the clinicians can exercise their professional judgment and determine whether disclosure is in the best interest of the individual that they're caring for. And then if so, disclose the information that's directly relevant to that person's involvement with the patient's care. So I think for for this case, historically, a lot of clinicians would have said that the patient's HIV serostatus is relevant to his clinical condition, therefore may be permissible for them to disclose the serostatus, especially when you combine that with some of the things that we know about the ways that clinicians and the public have previously thought about HIV, which is that it's a death sentence and we have this duty to protect the public. But I think with some of these updates regarding HIV treatment, that the way we've approached this case might change. So you have mentioned changes that have occurred between then and now. What are those medical updates? What are those changes? Yeah, so the biggest change that is getting a lot of media now is what we call U equals U. What that stands for is that undetectable equals untransmittable. What that means in real words is that now we have evidence that the risk of HIV transmission from a person living with HIV who is on antiretroviral therapy was an undetectable viral load that their risk of transmitting HIV to another person is non-existent. So the way that changes the way we think about things is that in the past, when we had a case like this, we always wanted the patients to get treatment for themselves. We wanted them to get better. We wanted them to get treatment because we knew that with treatment, they could have a normal life expectancy. Now, the reason that we want patients to stay in treatment is not only for their own personal care, but also because it can help prevent the the transmission of HIV to other people. That if these patients can be on antiretroviral therapy, if they have an undetectable viral load for six months, that their risk of transmission is essentially zero. That seems huge. Tell me about the studies published on this issue. Yeah. So there's four big studies that were done on this. They were published in all the big medical journals, New England Journal, JAMA, The Lancet. And the studies essentially found that, you know, they they use the words negligible to non-existent, but they had zero transmissions. And uh, they real if people are actually undetectable in their serum, then they have no chance of transmitting through sexual partners. And that was done in heterosexual couples and same-sex couples. What is your sense of public knowledge of this new change? It's it's only now becoming more public. There is a huge effort to put this into the news. U equals U is getting a lot of media right now. But it's still really not well-known amongst the public and not really well-known amongst our clinicians even. And so what we're finding is that when we're getting called for these consults, even the clinicians who are calling us aren't aware of this new data about U equals U. And so, and a lot of people are doubting the data because it sounds pretty incredible that we can make the risk of transmission essentially zero. And so what we're finding is not only are we responsible for educating our patients about U equals U, we're also finding ourselves educating clinicians about it. 
there's only really two acronyms that we need to remember that we need to educate patients about, that we need to educate the public about, and that we need to talk to clinicians about. The first one is U equals U, um, which we talked a little bit about, but the evidence that now the risk of HIV transmission from patients who are undetectable viral load in their blood, are the risk of transmission to people without HIV is essentially 0%. And the second one is TASP, treatment as prevention. Um, this is the idea that Treating the patient helps treat them and it helps protect them from the complications of HIV, but it also prevents the transmission of HIV to other patients or other people, I should say. So in the past year alone, there U equals U has been all over the news. It's in the Washington Post. It's been on CNN. It's been um, on Newsweek. So a lot of really mainstream media um, are trying to promote this U equals U and try to educate the public about it. Um, and just recently, one of one big celebrity, Jonathan Beth Ness, who is uh, one of the guys who stars in the Queer Eye show, he went out in public and said he, that he was coming out as HIV positive, and he wants to spread the message that HIV is something that he lives with, something that he finds manageable, and something that he's protecting himself by being on treatment and protecting other people by being on treatment. And he has been a huge advocate for U equals U and trying to put it out into the public so that it's reaching the populations that really need to hear about this to get engaged in care and really try to stay in care. So when and how did this issue first attract your attention? This issue first attracted my attention because I'm relatively new to the world of ethics. Before my ethics fellowship, I hadn't had a lot of education with ethics consults or ethics education and we actually had a seminar down in Houston for when we were visiting for an observership just to kind of understand how different hospital systems teach ethics. And we had a seminar by an infectious disease doctor who actually gave us an overview of this topic. And again, I am a clinician. I'm a surgery resident, so I'm not an HIV specialist by any means. But as a clinician who'd been practicing for three and a half or four years, I actually had never heard of this U equals U update, nor would I have probably been able to incorporate that into my practice. So I found that fascinating that as a clinician, I was actually unaware of this. And then I wanted to help increase the awareness in my colleagues. In that very same seminar, so I was present as well. Nicole, Nakey, and I were all there together, as well as other faculty and colleagues from our center. And we learned about this, this U equals U, and we all came to the realization in the, in the ethics literature that we're doing this wrong. We're teaching medical students incorrectly. We have a first-year medical ethics course that has a a case discussion about HIV disclosure, and we were giving them the wrong ethical recommendation, saying we think disclosure is justified without taking into account that stuff has changed. We didn't know about this. And so it kind of led us all to the realization that we need to be doing a lot more to get this into the consciousness of clinicians, as Nicole just said, but also we're the ones who are being called, and if so, as ethicists. So if we don't know about it, we can't give proper recommendations. And I've recently started putting the 
the research that we've done into practice and in my own work and changing the recommendations that I would have given in the past based on this new medical information that I have. I was also, you know, at the same uh, conference where we really learned about U equals U. I will say that I have heard of it before as an internal medicine doctor, but it was really kind of eye-opening to me to see how many people hadn't heard of it. And since then, I've been talking to more of my colleagues about our research, and a lot of them hadn't heard of it either. And so it just highlighted this kind of lack of knowledge and lack of comfort with talking about U equals U, talking about how we should think about disclosure. And really, this was a good opportunity to write about it, to read about it, and to educate people about it. Um, And people want to know what to do in these situations, and they come up much more often than we realized. What questions are you seeing in the ethics consultations with patients and clinicians that you're involved in? So I think bringing this back to the case that we were discussing earlier with the patient who has toxoplasmosis in the setting of HIV and is not on his medications, some of the questions we're seeing from clinicians are, should we disclose? How we disclose? When should we disclose? With U equals U, uh, I think it's very important to kind of recognize that one of the main things that we are concerned about, and again, one of the things that Jonathan Van Ness has been trying to advocate is to get people into care and to have them be retained in care. So being compliant with HIV treatment. And I think one of the most important things in that setting is having a trusting physician-patient relationship because there have been studies that have shown that if you have a trusting relationship, you trust the medical system, that you're far more likely to be retained in HIV treatment. So I think in this case, the other thing that we're seeing is that clinicians are asking us, this patient is expected to regain capacity, so expected to get better if he's in treatment. So with that, I think it's even more important to emphasize that if he wakes up and we've disclosed that he has HIV without his knowledge or over what would have been maybe his objection, he's maybe far less likely to trust the medical system and far less likely to be retained in care because he's not going to want to go see doctors who he doesn't trust. So I think in that setting, clinicians should probably know that in these settings, we might actually be less likely to to disclose the serostatus if the patient is expected to regain capacity. Nikki or Jamie, do you want to add anything about what you're seeing on this issue? The questions I've been asked thus far is, is it okay for us to disclose? And I think in the past, before these new medical updates, the um, moral distress that folks were feeling when they couldn't disclose to people that they felt were at risk for HIV transmission was a, a really good benefit that we thought outweighed the potential harms. And now that the medical situation has changed, that's not a good enough reason anymore. And the questions that I've been getting, um, I had an interaction recently with a resident who was really struggling to believe me when I said, um, I don't believe that his HIV status is is relevant to the decision-making, and therefore you should not disclose it. And he really couldn't grasp that. It was a real struggle for him. And I had to say, you don't really understand the stigma of this, and you don't understand that it's it's more important now to have this patient trust us and stay in treatment, treatment as prevention, And 
that's what our obligation is, is to this man in front of us and not to his theoretical partners or family members. And he did end up abiding my my recommendation not to disclose, but it just goes to show you that this is embedded not just in society stigma and discrimination, but also embedded in our medical system. And part of the reason that we're embarking on this project is to educate both of those populations to the best of our ability. So I think that we're getting two main types of consults. One is, is it in the best interest of the patient to disclose their HIV status to the person who's making decisions for them? And the other one is one in which people are calling us, clinicians are calling us to say, this person doesn't have capacity, they aren't objecting because they don't have capacity, but do you think that their loved ones or their partner or their family has the right to know that they have HIV? So one is really based in, is it in the best interest of the patient? And one is based in, is it in the best, is it our job to make sure that their family and their partners are informed of what's going on? I think for the second part, it's been pretty clear that we really are obligated to take care of patients, that we are, are caring for that our obligation is not to their partners. We don't aren't supposed to directly inform their partners of zero status. But I think for the first part, we're changing the balance a little bit. That what's in the best interest of the patient now includes this new data about U equals U, which in the past it has not. So what is key for clinicians to do to have the best impact on patient care regarding this issue? So there are a few things that we want clinicians to be aware of in cases like this and just be mindful of. So I think the first is just being educated on these new updates, knowing what U equals U is and how that potentially can impact patient care. And then as they're approaching dealing with patients, um, asking themselves if the patient is already U equals U. If they are, that's fantastic. They've been retained in care. But if they are not, then we have to think about as clinicians, how can we best get them into care and have them stay in care? And I think with regard to that question, it comes into consideration about how sick the patient is and how their mental status is. And if they're currently incapacitated but expected to regain capacity at some point with treatment, then those patients potentially, we want to maximize their trust in us and the medical system. So in cases like that, potentially we would have them be have a much higher threshold to disclose to decision makers as they're treating those patients. And if they're not expected to regain capacity, then we still have to kind of consider what information we disclose to the family just because of the stigma that could be lasting even after the patient passes away. What are you hearing most from colleagues when you're engaging them on this issue? Yeah, so what I've been hearing a lot of is a few things. One is that the moral distress about disclosure feels a lot less heavy to clinicians now that treatment is prevention. Um, Because a lot of the moral distress that clinicians were feeling was knowing that other people and this in this person's life were at risk without knowing about it. And now there's a way to talk to the patient, coach the patient, try to get the patient into treatment. And that treatment would be prevention, not just for the patient themselves, but for the people around them. And that really, for for clinicians, has relieved a lot of the moral distress that prompted them to call the ethics consultant in the first place. Um, The second part is that I think people are having a much higher threshold to disclose, that 
knowing that U equals U exists and that we can get patients to a place where they're getting treatment, their risk of transmission is zero, and really being able to educate patients on that and with good knowledge and good um, support can help retain patients in care and really provide or create a good therapeutic relationship between patients and their doctors. You have made references to projects you are working on. What are they? So the the first project was the uh, a presentation that we gave at the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities that um, was the annual conference we met when we gave this presentation first introducing it to a variety of folks who are interested in bioethics and we got really great feedback at that so that was kind of our first step but we have ongoing projects we're hoping to publish an article that outlines the justifications for and against disclosure as well as kind of creating a decision tree that um, folks can follow when they do, in fact, have these patients who are admitted and trying to help provide guidelines for them. And there's also a ton of great information online, HIVLawAndPolicy.org, the CDC's website, a lot of other different great resources that we'll provide links to so folks who are interested in learning more can, can do so. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.